Ah, yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word line upon line. get into this study, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, just open with a word of prayer, asking God to bless our understanding, to deepen our conviction, to deepen our faith and appreciation and gratitude and respect for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, and it opens, therefore, holy brethren, and uh, whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves what it's there for. And we began in chapter 1, with the Apostle establishing the superiority of Christ, that he's superior to Moses, he's superior to the angels, he's superior to the creation. And then we went into chapter 2 with a therefore. And that was there to say, because Christ is superior, therefore we ought to pay the more earnest attention to this calling, to this salvation, this great salvation that we've been called to. And now after his logic in chapter 1 and his logic in chapter 2, now he comes to chapter 3 to say, therefore, because chapter 1, Christ is superior, and chapter 2, we ought to pay the more earnest heed to, to this calling, to this great salvation that we've been called to. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now, we need to take some time with this. In fact, we'll just uh, briefly uh, look at the Greek. And when we look at the Greek here, there's just something I want to point out, where he says, Othen, uh, therefore, Adelphoi Agioi. This is the holy brethren. He, he's speaking to the brethren that have been set apart. And here he says, Cleosios uh, Epurenio. 
metakoi. So he's saying here, those who share in the heavenly calling, the, the, the holy brethren, the beloved brethren who've been set apart, who, part, who are participating in the heavenly calling, these are the ones that he's asking to consider, to, to, to really deeply think about what it is they have heard, what it is he's asking them to consider. That he's, he's saying to them, you, you need to think about this. This is something, so, so we ourselves now, this is, this is for our benefit, we ought not to read over this. We ought to deeply consider this, who are the holy brethren. And I think I, I want to touch on this for, for uh, or this part, just for a couple of reasons. One is, this once saved, always saved. You can't believe in once saved, always saved, and believe in the Bible. At, at the same time. So, so here's the holy text that he's not speaking to kind of false believers and true believers and, and those who will uh, accept this doctrine of once saved, always saved. Along with it goes this understanding that there are the apostles and the prophets and they are speaking to the congregation. But within the congregation, there are two categories of people. One category of people in the congregation are the true believers. And the other category of people in the congregation are false believers. They're, they're sort of the, the tares, let's say. They're not, they're not the true believers. So whenever he's speaking in a way that says, hey, you could slip up, you could miss out on everything, those comments are not directed to the true believers. Those comments are directed to the false believers. We can't reconcile that positioning with the book of Hebrews. Throughout the book, it's all about, it's, it's, it's Hebrew, it's a Hebrew, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, speaking to the Hebrews. This is an insider conversation. It's written down, you know, we believe it was a sermon that's been uh, transcribed, but it's written down. So now we, who uh, are grafted in, or even if we were not grafted in, if we're just Gentiles, we're not even in the church, we could pick this up and read it and kind of eavesdrop into a private conversation between Hebrews facing a crisis. Now, we who are grafted in, this is addressing us because all of these things are written for our admonition. So it is, it, it's, it's the holy brethren. And to be more specific, the holy brethren who are participating in the heavenly calling. That's who he's addressing. And so we cannot reconcile once saved, always saved with the scriptures. What we can reconcile it with is Greek philosophy. So if we look at, and just give me a moment here, if we, if we look at, uh, we'll just look at uh, Hebrews here. Give me one moment. So if we look here in, uh, under Gnosticism, this notion, this category of people called the pneumatics, this is coming from Gnosticism, and, and Gnosticism was very, very influential. It, we, we see the influence of the Greeks everywhere. And, and these philosophers who bought into Gnosticism and brought Gnosticism into Christianity, they have, they have really warped our understanding of the scriptures because they're imposing Greek philosophy into the scriptures. Notice this regarding pneumatics in, in Gnosticism. The pneumatics, that is the spiritual, the pneuma, were in Gnosticism, the highest order of humans. Oh, there are different orders of humans. So within Gnosticism, 
the prophets and the apostles, these are the highest order of humans. The other two, there's three orders of human beings. The other two orders being psychics and hylics. Hylics are, are matter. They're, they're the lowest. They're the basest humans. Psychics can go either way. So psychics can become pneumatics or they can become hylics. So these are the ones that the pneumatics are preaching to. The, the psychics can become the true believers. The hylics cannot. So the psychics now, they're the ones that can be, once they're saved, they can be always saved. Because once they're saved, they become part of the pneumatics. Whereas the hylics, they are destined for damnation. So the, the, the other side of the coin of once saved, always saved, is once condemned, always condemned. And this is the, the, um, the sovereign God. You'll, you'll also hear um, people who believe in once saved, always saved, use this terminology of the sovereign God. And what they mean by that is, no one can resist his will. Whatever he wills, that's it. So if he wills you to be saved, nothing can stop that. You're going to be saved. No matter what, you can go and murder, rape, kill, steal. And this is what Christians believe, who, who accept this once saved, always saved. That they can do whatever they like, and they're going to be saved. On the other hand, the Hylix, no matter what they do, they can never be saved. So it is the pneumatics who escape the doom of the material world, this is all Greek philosophy, via the transcendent, not transcendent knowledge of Sophia's divine spark within the soul. So they have this divine spark, and because that divine spark belongs to God and it's going back to God, the pneumatics can never be damned. They're, they're, they have escaped all of this. Now, hopefully we understand and, and we can see very clearly, this is all nonsense. However, it creeped into or it crept into Christianity through these philosophers. And then John Calvin really popularized this once saved, always saved in, in the, uh, the, the mid, the, um, what am I thinking here, the medieval times? Sort of the, the middle, the middle of the uh, century, around 15th, 16th century. Uh, and so this big dispute between Calvinism and Arminianism, and, and both of them are Greek philosophers. They're both rooted in Greek philosophy. And it has nothing to do with the Hebrew covenant of God. God has covenanted with the Hebrews. And the covenant is an if-then. If you obey my voice, then you will inherit the promised land. And you will inherit all these blessings. But if you break the covenant, if you disobey my voice, then all these curses will come upon you. And so when the apostle opens this letter with, in times past, God spoke to our fathers by the angels. It, 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 almost, sounds, uh, it almost sounds complimentary. It almost sounds complimentary that, hey, we're the special ones. You know, God didn't speak to the Africans and the Arabs and the Chinese. No, he spoke to us. He spoke to our fathers, all of the prophets. There's no such thing as a Chinese prophet. There's no such thing as a Hebrew prophet. There's no, sorry, as, a, as an Arabian prophet. There's no such thing as an African prophet. There's no such thing as an Indian prophet. And if we belong to any of these categories of races or ethnic groups, get over it. Get over it and rejoice that there are prophets, that God has opened a path to salvation, but it is through his covenant that he has made with Israel. And the northern tribes of Israel were divorced. The only tribe that was left with the covenant was the south. 
the, 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 the tribes of Judah, Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. This is where the covenant is. And even, even Israel, the northern tribes, have to come into the covenant through, through, through the Judaic, through the Jews. It's the Jews that salvation is of the Jews. No such thing as a prophet from any other ethnicity. And some religions are teaching that God sent 120,000 prophets through all. It's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. And these are not special. The, the, the Elijah was a man like us. He had passions like us. These are just men that were chosen to deliver the message. So he, when he says, in times past, God spoke to us through the fathers. It sounds like a compliment. It's a condemnation. It's a condemnation. Because the fathers, even though they heard from God, they turned their back on him. And God is moving now to say, don't be like your fathers. Now, the voice you're hearing is not through angels. It's not through Moses. It's through Christ himself. It's through God himself. And so, we cannot be like the fathers. We have to be faithful. So this once saved, always saved, it, it's terrible. It's an evil doctrine. Because the, the, the root of it, or the fruit of it, the fruit of once saved, always saved, is basically nothing to do here. We really don't have to do anything. Now that we are quote-unquote saved, and, and our deacon Jan gave a wonderful sermon a few weeks ago on the process of salvation. That salvation is a process. You can't say, oh, I remember on February 12, 1982 when I was saved. This is nonsense. Salvation is a process through the covenant. And we are, we are being faithful, fighting to be faithful for the faith once delivered. So that he who endures, we are enduring, we are struggling to endure. He who endures unto the end shall be saved. It is a process with an outcome at the end. And what once saved, always saved uh, does, the fruit of it is, hey, nothing to do here. Now that I'm saved, it's really just a matter of rewards. If I do nothing, in fact, if I do evil, I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. The sovereign God has saved me. And so I'm going to do nothing. In fact, I'll do evil. And I'll still be in the kingdom. I just won't have a reward. Or I won't have a great reward. This is nonsense. We are being brought to salvation as the Hebrews to be a priesthood. A priesthood means we are going to instruct others. All these folks, all billions of human beings in darkness, in stupidity, in immorality. They have no clue. They, they can't know. They don't know it like uh, um, Jonah when he was sent to Nineveh. And God says, shouldn't I have mercy on these people who don't know their left hand from their right hand? We're surrounded by people who don't know their left hand from their right hand. And God loves them. God, God wants to be merciful to them. But he has a process. And so he's calling people today. He's calling the Hebrews today. The church. The covenant people. Partakers in the heavenly calling. To educate us. And good doctrine results in good behavior. So this doctrine that we have, we, we do it. We don't, just, we don't just intellectualize. We hear and we do. And we change and we learn. We learn the, the beauty and the power of God's ways. And because we are learning, we can now teach. And when Jesus Christ returns, we're not going to be saying to the world, to, to, to mankind at that time, we never did any of this. 
but you need to do it. We're going to be saying to them, the process you're going through right now, we went through this. We, we can be empathetic priests to you because we've gone through it. The same way Christ can be empathetic with us because he came to earth and he went through it. So let us not be saved. So there's two things we need to address here. One is this pervasive, uh, it's called the perseverance of the saints, this Calvinism, this once saved, always saved, which is causing complacency. Rather than us realizing, as the, this uh, letter to the Hebrews is trying to encourage us, hey, take heed, pay attention, make an effort, focus, apply yourself, treat it with a sense of urgency. Instead, you know, what we have in the churches, and I don't mean CGI, I mean the church of God, broadly, is, is a sense of complacency, a sense of self-satisfaction. And it's very hard to reconcile this self-congratulatory, we are the called ones, you know, we, we, we are the chosen ones. It's very hard to reconcile this with the letters of Christ to the church, to the churches, the epistles of Christ, where he's not really congratulatory. His eyes are like a flame of fire and there's a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. All symbolism for him communicating to us in a way that is saying, take this seriously. Pay attention. Don't let this slip away. And this sense that, hey, we're saved and you know we don't have to do anything, that's, that's, we've, got to, we've got to expunge this from the church. Secondly, we're in an era of syncretism. We're in an era, really, um, you know, we thought communism died in the, in the late 80s. It didn't. It went underground. And now it's, it's surfacing and it's flexing its muscles. And it's global. The Marxists are in control of everything. They are long-term strategic thinkers. And they're flexing their muscles now. And one thing we know about Marxists is they hate Christ. They hate Christianity because Christianity is the major obstacle to their objectives. And so they have to expunge Christianity out of the Judeo-Christian cultures so that they can have their way. And because of that, they are promoting anything and everything that is against uh, white patriarchy, which is code for Christianity. Because Christianity, although it's a Middle Eastern religion, uh, in the seventh century, uh, the um, Caliph Umar basically slaughtered all the Christians. Slaughtered them, subjugated them, exiled them. And all of those churches that we read of in Revelation, they're all Muslim cities now. There's no congregations there. So the Middle East, North Africa, Middle East, rather than that being the hub of Christianity, which it was, it's now the hub of... When, when we say Middle East, everybody thinks Muslim. So, fortunately, Paul went west and took Christianity into Western Europe. And from Western Europe, then, these uh, societies went into uh, England and into America and Canada and Australia and South Africa, and they took their Judeo-Christian values with them. And so we see, most people think now, Christianity is a white man's religion. No, it's not. It's the truth. And it used to be a Middle Eastern black man religion in North Africa and the Middle East. But they were all slaughtered. And so when we say white patri when, when the Marxists say white patriarchy, what they're saying really is it's code for Christianity. Let's destroy Christianity. So let's promote everything against Christianity. 
including Islam. Let's bring the Muslims over and, you know, let's promote Islam in school. Let's promote Islam everywhere. Let's give freedom to Islam, but not to Christianity. Not to Christianity. And so one of the things, and, and you know, here we're 2018, it's just a matter of time before we have to deny the divinity of Christ. And that's why Hebrews is so powerful, because it is clear that Christ is God. And we're going to be accused of ditheism and binitarianism and, hey, we just read the scriptures. And God reveals himself to us in the scriptures. And throughout the scriptures, through Genesis, right to Daniel, uh, through here in Hebrews and Revelation, in, in the Gospels, all over, it becomes crystal clear to us that this God who loves mankind and is working with mankind has revealed himself to us through his son. God has a son. God is a family. And he's not limited. So, so there's God. And, and if you haven't heard Vance Stinson's sermon on the one God, you've got to hear that. He explains this just so crystal clear. And we all have to be able to understand this and articulate it and defend it, defend the divinity of Christ. That God is a family. And he's building a family. And the partakers of the heavenly calling are part of this family project. God wants a family. Father, Son, he's our, we are his brethren now. We're going to be born again. We're going to be born into this family. We're going to marry Christ. It's all family construct. And we need to understand this. And so here we are, 2018. I don't know how far in the future this is going to be, but hopefully this will still be available. So I'm speaking to the brethren in the future who hopefully have access to this archive to say, read Hebrews and do not turn back. That what, you know, if you turn to Islam and you say, okay, yeah, philosophically, and it's all just Greek philosophy, the same thing that we see here with the Hylix and the psychics and the pneumatics, it's in Islam. That the prophets are the pneumatics. They're, they're holy people and, and they're, they're sinless and, and they're a special category of mankind. And then there are the Muslims who accept the, the teaching of these pneumatics. And then there are the Kafirs who can never be saved. And God just wants to burn and bur created them to burn in hell. For, it's the same once saved, always saved doctrine. It's the same Greek philosophy. And Muhammad, he wasn't a Greek philosopher, but he learned Christianity from the Gnostics who fled from Rome into the desert. And, and that's the access to Christianity that the Arabs had. It was Gnosticism. And, and Muhammad used to go to the market and learn from a Christian boy. If you read the, the life of Muhammad, if you read his biography, it tells you right in here that he learned his Christianity from a Greek, uh, from a Greek uh, Christ, uh, Christian boy, a Gnostic who had a flawed understanding of Christianity. And so we must understand that Jesus Christ is God. He is very God. He is the creator. And that's what we'll learn here in, in uh, Hebrews, as we study Hebrews. So he says, therefore, who is he speaking to? It's the Hebrews speaking to the Hebrews. These are the brethren who are set apart, who are partakers of the heavenly calling. This destroys once saved, always saved. This is talking to the holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. And then he says, consider. Consider. It means we need to really deeply think, meditate on this. What is this all about? Take time to understand this. Meditate on what? The apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So we have to think about 
the apostle. Oh, Christ is an apostle. And this is the only place where Christ is called an apostle in the New Testament. But that's important information. He's an apostle. He was sent. Who was he sent by? Well, here in John 20, verse 21, he says, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. So the apostles were sent by Christ, but Christ himself was sent by the Father. So Christ is the apostle. That means he was sent for a purpose. He was sent with a message. And that message and that purpose come from the Father. So Christ is the apostle. But he says here to consider not only the apostle, but also the high priest of our profession. So a priest facilitates a relationship between man and God. And that's what Christ is our high priest. And we're going to get more into that because he's, in, he's a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And that's a whole new, new level of understanding that we'll get to uh, later in the book. But here, I believe that's in chapter 7, but here he says, consider the high priest of what? Of our profession. Oh, he facilitated our profession. And this is uh, really our oath. He is the, we took an oath with the Father, and he facilitated that relationship, that covenant relationship. So every one of us who were baptized into this calling, we made a profession. We took an oath, and Jesus Christ facilitated that. The oath is with the Father. And we have a high priest that made that possible through his blood. So he's saying to, to, to consider the oath that you made with the one that was sent from the Father and was a high priest and could facilitate our repentance and our covenanting with the Father. Think about this. Because... Christ is superior to everything. And if the fathers were so severely punished because of their rebellion against the message that was sent to them through angels and through Moses, how much more will we be punished if we turn our back on a message that came to us from one that was sent directly from God, his own son, who is God, and who is also our high priest, to facilitate the, the relationship, the covenant relationship that we now have with the Father. So he says to consider, why should we consider this man, this apostle, this high priest? Well, remember when we studied Luke, that Christ was on a mission, was a man on a mission. And he quoted Isaiah 61, and he did everything to fulfill the scriptures. But he was marching from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he was just set I must go to Jerusalem. And why was he going to Jerusalem? To be slaughtered. And he says here in Luke 9.22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders, the fathers, the chief priests and scribes, the people who are supposed to facilitate a relationship with God. God comes to earth and he must be rejected by them. But not just rejected by them. It goes further. He must go to Jerusalem to be slain. He was a man on a mission, and it was a mission to redeem Israel. And in order to redeem Israel, he had to come in the shoes of Israel, fulfill the covenant that God made with Israel, and then instead of taking the reward, take the punishment that Israel deserved. So that God, who is a just God, does not have to go back on his word. 
The covenant is the covenant and the covenant stands. And through Christ, all the conditions of the covenant are fulfilled, both negative and positive. And so he must be slain and then be raised the third day. So Christ looked to the resurrection and he came with a sense of purpose. And we must consider this oath that we made, who is the high priest of this oath? Who is the apostle that was sent to facilitate this oath? Think about him. We call ourselves Christians. This is not just like, like a nice thing to say, oh, I'm a nice Christian. It means that we are followers of the way. Christ came and showed us the way. And we are following his way. And what that means is we are so full of love for God, so full of love for the covenant that God has with Israel, the, his love for Israel, that nothing can separate us from this love of God. And he tells us the worst that men can do ultimately is just to kill us. And then after that, there's nothing more that they can do. But then they have to face God, who after death, he has the ability to raise the dead and then to throw the wicked into the lake of fire where they will truly perish and to bring the righteous into everlasting life. He says he has the keys of death, of hell and of death. He can open the grave. So we have to consider our high priest and apostle. And so the here, here's an example of true Christians. Here in Revelation 6 when we were there, the cry of the martyrs. And when he opened the fifth seal, he saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And that's the whole purpose of the book of Revelation, is to get us to understand the testimony of Christ and to hold on to it, no matter what. Because he's showing us the whole story. And so we can see straight through to the finish line and we're like, yes, we are going to be there. When Christ returns, will he find faith on the earth? Yes. Yes, he will. In us. It might be very few, but we have seen the, we've seen the end of the story. And so we will have this conviction uh, and we will hold on to the testimony of Christ. And if we are slain, we are slain. What an honor. What an honor to suffer for Christ. What an honor to be slain for Christ. Is there anything that Christ could ask us to do? And we say, you know what, Christ, you're just asking a little too much now. When we who were nothing had nothing, we're, we're, we're just slaves of sin. He came and he redeemed us from that. And he's given us this glory. This, it, it's real. It's, it's, it's right around the corner. And it's ours. Is there anything that he could ask us to do? And we say, no, that's too much. And so these saints were willing to be slain in order to hold on to the truth, the word of God, and the testimony of Christ. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how much longer, how long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Consider the high priest. And these brethren, these holy brethren who are considered faithful and who have the honor to stand up for Christ and love not their lives unto the death, these are true Christians. And they're true Christians because they have considered. They have thought deeply about their high priest. And they've considered it in detail. They've, 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 they've sort of studied his life and the outcome of his life. 
and and people are going to say all kinds and they're going to hate us and we're you know we're going to be accused of blasphemy as as the early for church was but we understand you know what let's look at the fruit let's look at the fruit you who, who do you want us to follow great just tell us who you want us to follow and we're going to examine their life and we're going to examine the fruit of their teachings and we can spot falsehood not you yeah you got lovely narrative and rhetoric and you can make philosophy sound one way or another christ told us don't bother with all of that look at the fruit and then we can look at the life of christ the pure life of christ and we can look at the transformational impact of his teachings on his followers and we can see people's lives being purified and people being brought up to a holy calling to a higher level and we can look at the fruit and we can say yes lord you know they're going to throw all kinds at us and all kinds of accusations we're going to study the word and we're going to look at the fruit of the word and we're going to say yeah we're good you, you, you do your worst you do whatever you want because you're following perversion and corruption and by their fruits you shall know them because they're going to sound like sheep and they're going to look like sheep but inwardly they're ravening wolves and ravening wolves have the fruit of ravening wolves but he says here you are a chosen generation so we're not called for our sake we're called into service we're a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation a peculiar people that we should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light this is the plan for israel from the very beginning in exodus 19 verse 6 that when god covenanted with them it was to make them a holy nation a kingdom of priests and that's what we are this is now he's doing it a different way at first he did it with the fathers with the old covenant and that failed and so now he has the new covenant and that's what we're called into and this is what we have to consider when we consider our high priest because we're called to be priests continuing in verse 2 consider our high priest consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession the oath that we took in baptism who was faithful to him that appointed him as also moses was faithful in all his house so we have to consider him we have to think about him think about his life think about his faithfulness right up to the very end his love for israel right up to the very end how he faced the in the undiluted hatred of the devil and how he conquered the devil through love that he went as a lamb as silent to the slaughter and he did that because of his love for israel and that satan is throwing the worst at him at the height of satan's hatred love triumphs and he comes out of the grave because of his power of love consider this and now that spirit is in us and it is not a spirit of cowardice it's a spirit of power it's a spirit of love it's a spirit of a sound mind we must have this clarity of vision and this the way he was faithful to him who appointed him we need to be faithful so these hebrews think they can turn back to judaism and be faithful and the apostle is saying no you are being unfaithful Judaism was pointing to Christ and now Christ came and now that you have Christ if you go back to Judaism you are being unfaithful but okay 
You exalt Moses. Let's talk about Moses. Yes, Moses was faithful, but he was faithful in all his house. And this is an illusion that we'll talk about in a moment. But he's saying, okay, Moses, yeah, Moses, Moses is big. Moses is a big deal. And every Jew understands Moses is a big, big deal. But let's, let's put him in context. He was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So consider the high priest, Jesus Christ. He is counted worthy of more glory. He's superior to Moses. You want to turn back to Moses? He's superior to Moses. Inasmuch as he who has built the house is superior, he who has built the house has more honor than the house. So he, yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So the, the one who built the house has more honor than the house. So Moses was faithful in the house. Christ built the house. And since he built the house, he has more honor than the house that Moses was faithful in. And so this uh, faithful of faithfulness of Moses in the house is an allusion to Numbers 12. When Miriam and Aaron accused Moses, they spoke against him because he married a Cushite woman. And you know they were Israelites and there's a bit of racism taking place here. And they were accusing him of marrying this Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? You know, why is Moses such a big deal here? Look, what he's gone and married a Cushite woman. Has he not spoken also by us? And we have this in the church to this day. Where God appoints elders. He selects us to be in the church, first of all. Nobody can be in the church unless God draws us to Christ. But within the church, he appoints elders. And he appoints deacons. And these are handpicked by God. For, for the edification of the church. And yet within the church, we'll always have the murmurers who are like, as God only is only speaking through the elders, God, God speaks to all of us. We don't need elders. Well, there's a reason why God picks elders. And it's not for the ego gratification of the elders. The elders, in fact, sacrifice. And, and when I look at the, the workload of the elders, and, and most of the elders in CGI are volunteers. We, we do this uh, voluntarily. I was going to say off the side of our desk, but often it's right in the center of our desk and our vocation is on the side of our desk. So I see the sacrifice of my fellow elders. And yet I see them, hear the murmurers, oh, God, why, why do we have to listen to the elders? Well, in the same way they did this to Moses. Has he not spoken also by, aren't we all elders? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek. Above, above all men which were upon the face of the earth. So they're throwing accusations at Moses and Moses is like, okay, sure. He, he's, he's not there. He, he wasn't driven by ego. He was driven by a deep sense of duty and a great love for Israel. And the Lord spoke suddenly unto Moses. So this suddenly gives us a sense of his anger. And unto Aaron and unto Miriam. So he spoke to all three of them. Come out you three unto the tabernacle of the congregation and the three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. So the three of them were called out to speak with God. And then Aaron and Miriam were singled out. And they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. So they were full of words. 
And now God says, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make, make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. So they're accusing him of being unfaithful because he married this Cushite woman. And God says, no, he backs him up. Moses has done nothing wrong. And I think sometimes people would teach that, you know, mustn't intermarry. The Bible doesn't teach this. We mustn't have interfaith marriages. But Moses did nothing wrong. And so he says, Moses is faithful in all my house. He, everything he does is faithful. He has not disobeyed me. So, so this is the illusion that the apostle is making in Hebrews. That Moses is faithful in all my house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth or face to face. So other prophets he's speaking through dreams and vision. With Moses he's speaking face to face. Even apparently, uh, just obviously, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Therefore then, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So Moses was faithful in all his house. So the fathers should have respect for the position of Moses. But the apostle is saying, Christ is superior to Moses. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So they spoke against Moses. These Hebrews are thinking of speaking against Christ and turning their back on Christ. And the apostle is saying, look, look what happened. Moses was faithful in all his house. Look what happened. And we'll just read here. The cloud departed off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. So consider Miriam, as we consider our high priest, consider Miriam and how she rejected Moses and the anger that fell upon her. Then consider that you know, Moses was faithful and God did not tolerate this murmuring against his faithful servant. And yet, the apostle is saying, basically, yeah, Moses deserves respect, but he's nothing compared to Christ. And if you're going to murmur against Christ, if you're going to turn your back against the high priest of your oath, Consider Miriam and what happened when she turned her back on Moses who was faithful in all his house. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beg you, lay not this sin upon us wherein we have done foolishly. And the Hebrews are about to do foolishly. And wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. And the Lord sent... Uh, so that, that was one uh, rebellion. Another rebellion that, that is alluded to here is the rebellion in Numbers 26, when the people just perverted themselves and didn't believe God, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, and Moses prayed for the people. So he was a priest for the people and facilitating the relationship between the people and Christ. For this man was counted worthy of... So, so back to Hebrews 3. This man being Christ is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So we have to understand when the people stood against Moses, the wrath that came upon them. And what the apostle is saying now is if you reject Christ, 
consider the wrath that came upon those who rejected Moses, and Moses is inferior to Christ. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. So Christ is the builder of the house. He is the builder of the church. And so he is Moses was faithful in the house, but Christ built the house. So he says, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man. But he that built all things is God. And, and again, there is this movement to say that Jesus Christ is not God. But the apostle is making it very clear, very, very clear, crystal clear, that Jesus Christ is God. In fact, Christ himself introduces himself as God when, in, in, in Revelation. When he's described as him which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty, the Almighty in Revelation 1. He said he's the Almighty. Here he is God. He built everything. And Moses, verily, was faithful in all his house as a servant. So, so that's all Moses was. Moses lived in the house and he was a servant. So the same way that the master would ring a bell and say, I need you in the bathroom. I, I need you in room four. Okay, now go to room five. And the servant's up and down the house going wherever the master tells him to go. That was Moses. He was a servant in the house. As Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. So he was pointing to something. But Christ as a son over his own house. So, so yeah, Moses was faithful in the house Christ built the house. And Christ is over the house. Christ is the head of the church. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we. Notice this. Who's, who's the we? Who, who's he talking to? Remind me again. How did, how did the chapter open? Holy brethren. The brethren who've been set apart for holy use. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This is who the letter is addressed to. And he says now, whose house are we? We are, we are part of his body. We are part of the church. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, there is going to be opposition. And again, this is 2018 when I'm recording this. I don't know when you'll be listening to this in the future, but sometime in the near future, and, and from what I can see, and based on my calculations, it's somewhere in the next 7 to 35, 40 years that Christianity is going to be in a lot of trouble in the West. And there's going to be massive defection and syncretism and people backing off of the holiness of Christ, backing off of the deity of Christ. And all I can say is, Whose house are we if, if, whose house are we if we hold fast this, this oath? We, we took an oath of confidence. If we hold fast the confidence, who is he talking to? The holy brethren. This is conditional. 
If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope of the resurrection, if we, hold, if we endure unto the end, we shall be saved. If then, if then, do not turn your back on Jesus Christ. And you know what? Those who turn their back on Christ and say, you know, we're just going to go back to the temple, go back to our meaningless rituals. We have Christ, but we're going to go back to the rituals. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So what did they go back to? All of that was, was no longer required since Christ came. So in the same way now, we, this is all written for our admonition, we must hold fast. That's what Revelation is all about. That blessed is he who reads it and keeps reading it and they who hear it and keep hearing it and keep those things which are written therein. That just as John was faith, the faithful witness, he followed Christ the faithful witness, we must be faithful witnesses. We must declare the testimony of Christ. And so we hold, if we hold, this, this, this word if, get rid of this once saved, always saved, and just accept the scriptures. Do not negate the scriptures. And, and have a sense of urgency. Let, let's have a certain sense of urgency about us. Let, let's clean up our lives. Let, let's, let's be like people who really believe that Jesus Christ is coming to earth. And he's not happy. He's full of wrath. But he wants to marry us. He wants to covenant with us forever. And so he addresses his church first. He walks in the midst of the candlesticks, correcting what he sees, so that the church will not be subject to his wrath. And do not be complacent. As, as an elder, and I know my pastor, co-pastor Murray, and all the elders that, are, that, that work with me here, and, and all the elders that are faithful, we are concerned about the complacency in the church. And we want to see brethren who have this hope of rejoicing in the end, who, who look forward to his appearing, not, not, not afraid of his appearing. So, so he is, it says here, that he, he, he's the son over the house. He's the son over his own house, whose house we are. And he says, in the beginning, so he made everything. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, we, the, the scripture is very clear. You know, believe whatever you want to believe, we believe in the scripture. So we open the scripture, we study the scripture, we accept the scripture. Jesus Christ is God. He's the Son of God. And He's come to redeem man. So He was with God, and He was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So this is what scripture is telling us, and it's all over the Bible. All things were made by Him. He is the Creator, the Almighty. And without Him was not anything made that was... There's nothing created that we can look at and say, Oh yeah, but somebody else created that. Or the Father created that, but Christ wasn't involved. The Father delegated the creative project to Christ. He is the Logos. And He created everything with His Word. So everything that's made was made. This is why he's superior to the whole creation. Because he created it all. And so he's over it all. And here, he's over the church. In 1 Corinthians 11 it says, But I would, not, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. And that, have you know, the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. So God is over Christ. Christ is over the man. The man is over the woman. This is the divine order of love. Not abuse, not abuse, 
self-sacrificing love, a, a service, ser service and servant leadership. Therefore, he says, as the Holy Spirit says, so this is what the Holy Spirit says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, this is a different day than yesterday. Yesterday, the Spirit spoke through the angels, to the prophets, to the fathers. And the fathers rebelled against that message. But that was yesterday. Okay, that's over. Today, in these last days, God has chosen to speak to us through His Son, who is superior by orders of magnitude than anybody else that brought any other message, that all those messages anywhere were pointing to Christ. So today, if you will hear His voice, again, the Scripture does not support this unconditional salvation. There are conditions of faithfulness, of endurance. He who endures to the end will be saved. Today, if you will hear his voice, the voice of the Son, harden not your hearts. Don't, don't go there, brethren. Don't, don't be stubborn. Don't allow your heart to harden. Who, who is he talking to? The holy brethren, the covenant community, the partakers of the heavenly calling. This can happen to anybody. So today, now that we've heard his voice, don't allow your hearts to harden, as in the provocation. Oh, this happened before. There was the, the, the covenant community hardened their heart. They heard the voice of God, but they hardened their hearts. So don't do, don't do what our fathers did. Harden not your hearts as in the day, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Something happened in the past and they hardened their hearts and they provoked God. When your fathers tempted me, proved me and saw my works for 40 years, for 40 years he was working with them and they saw it firsthand. Therefore, I was grieved with that generation. Again, he opens this book saying, in times past, uh, God spoke to us, God spoke to our fathers. Sounds wonderful, but it's not, because our fathers rebelled. And so he's pointing to that engagement by God and the disaster that it was. And he's saying to the Hebrews, don't be like your fathers. Don't be like your, don't do this. Let's be different than the fathers. So therefore, God was grieved with the fathers. I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. This was God's evaluation of the fathers that he spoke to. Worked with them for 40 years, showed them miracles, gave them instructions through Moses, through the angels. And he says, they always err in their heart and they've not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath. God was angry with his people. He was angry with the fathers. They shall not enter into my rest. They will not enter into my rest. There was a promised land that they were to enter into, which would give them rest from all their enemies. And they could fellowship with God. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a glorious land. And he says, you know what? I'm done.
I cannot have these people. People need to be holy. They need to be priests in this land. And I'm not going to have this filth in holy land. So I swore to them in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Your eyes, so, so this is now Deuteronomy, and, and so he, he's saying that he worked with the fathers, he tried to work with them. Notice what it says here in Deuteronomy 4 verse 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. So something happened to Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, this is the provocation that the fathers tempted God with. All the men that followed in Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. Only So, so that's what happened to them. They got involved in this uh, sexual immorality. So take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen. And that's the same instruction that we're seeing here in Hebrews. Don't forget what you've seen. Don't forget this heavenly calling that you're participating in. The same way the fathers in the wilderness were involved in this heavenly work that God was doing on earth, and they forgot. They, they, they let it slip away from them. And what we're involved in is so much greater, we cannot forget, we cannot allow it to slip away from us. So he says, take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. So there's a sense that this could slip away. And so in same with Revelation, He's saying, keep reading this book, keep reading this prophecy, and keep the things that are written in it unto the end. Don't let it slip away. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen. So through John's eyes, we've seen things. We've seen what he saw. And God is saying, don't forget what your eyes have seen. He says, lest you forget the things which you, your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So this was a possibility. In fact, it was a reality. Even the children allowed this to slip away from them. But teach them your sons and your sons' sons. And this is the condemnation of the West now, who have the Judeo-Christian values. We have not taught them to our children. We have not taught them to our grandchildren sufficiently. So we have a generation now that is growing up with no regard for Judeo-Christian values. No regard for God. Young people who have the audacity to deny the existence of the Creator who created them. Young people who have the audacity to involve themselves in all kinds of filth with no regard for God's perspective. We've done this. Because we haven't passed on the precepts to them. And in fact, now what's happening is if you look in the schools and you look at the curriculum in the schools, they are teaching all kinds of filth to the youth and damaging their minds and damaging their hearts and in almost ensuring that the Word of God will never make any sense to them because they're going to be so corrupted and so inwardly destroyed. From, from, from kindergarten, they're pushing this filth into the minds of children. And we, the responsibility we have is to teach our children and our grandchildren. And they would say, oh, you can't, you can't teach Christianity to children. That's unfair. 
You're, you shouldn't dictate to them what their religion should be. They should be allowed to grow up and choose for themselves. Okay, so we, so we all backed off and said, yeah, okay, let them choose for themselves. And now the same people who said we mustn't do that, they're in the schools teaching homosexuality and transgenderism and all kinds of nonsense. Hey, wait, wait, you, you told us we shouldn't do that. And the minute we backed off, you swept in to teach filth. Well, that's our fault. And, you know, Christianity, we're not going to kill somebody if they turn their back on Christ. Christ will deal with them. But our job is to teach that they have the moral grounding, the foundation, so that they can now judge a life of following Christ, and they can see our example and the fruits of our life. And then they can look around and, and look at people who are following all kinds of nonsense. And, oh, you know what? I had a friend, and they were talking about this wonderful transgender life, and they killed themselves. I thought it was wonderful. Why are they suffering from such high suicide rates? Why are they so full of anxiety when it's supposed to be a wonderful life? When we who follow Christ were full of joy and determination and hope and all around us the world is falling apart and we, we, we are still joyful. And you know what? They turn away from the news. They, they turn the news on and it's all bad news and they don't want to hear it. We turn the news on and it's all bad news and we see straight through it. And we say like, wow, this is, this is close. Christ is coming. And we are hopeful because we understand reality. So it says here, Deuteronomy, But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. And here in Numbers he says, Say unto them, As truly as I live, says the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, this is, these are the fathers, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, this is Numbers, all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward which have murmured against me doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which i swear to make you dwell therein except caleb the son of jephunneh and joshua the son of nun these were the two faithful men and we need to be like caleb and joshua that god looks at us and says yeah absolutely you're going to dwell with me yet in this thing you did not believe the Lord your God. And this, this is what angered God. That they, they thought he was a liar. What pleased God with Abraham was God, God said it and Abraham said it. God says it's true because God cannot lie. And he believed him and it was counted to him for righteousness. We must be the same way. We have the word of God. It's impossible for God to lie. He said it, we believe it. But these fathers did not believe God. And this, is, this, this was their evil. And, and there's fruit associated with not believing God. And there's fruit associated with believing God. And so he says here in Deuteronomy 1, Who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch it your tents in, in fire by night to show you by what way you should go, and in a cloud by day. And the Lord heard the voice of your words, and was angry and swore, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men, notice how God characterizes them, for not believing his word. There shall not one of these men of this evil generation, not believing God is evil, of this evil generation see that good land, which I swore to give to your fathers. So God says, no way. No. No. And this is written for our admonition. Except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he has trodden upon and to his children, because he has wholly followed the Lord. 
and we need to wholly follow the Lord. And so back to Hebrews 3. Take heed. Who should take heed? Take heed, psychics, so that you can be with the pneumatics. And don't be like the hylics that are among us. O oh, true believers, take heed. Is that what this is saying? It's saying, brethren, Hebrews, all of you, Hebrews, covenant community, beware, take heed, lest there be in any of you. I'm looking at the Hebrew congregation, and I'm not looking at the congregation and saying, there are, believe, there are true believers, and there are false believers, and I'm talking to the true believers, and the sovereign God has got them covered, and so, so the, no. I'm talking to the whole community. Everybody. No exceptions. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. That's how God characterized the fathers. In their not believing God, he called them an evil generation. We have the Word of God. We have the book of Revelation that we've just studied together. Christ ends it by saying these words are faithful and true. This, this is reality. You know when you're dreaming and you have this really vivid dream and it's just like, it's real. And then you wake up and it's like, where did that go? That was just an illusion. That's like life. This all seems so real. But poof, it's gone. And reality is coming. A permanent reality is coming. And that reality is Christ. And he says at the end of Revelation, these words are faithful. These words are true. And we've heard these words. And we, we believe these words. So take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. That we say, you know what? I wasn't there. I don't really know. I, no. be, be careful. In departing, from the living God. And the Hebrews in going back to Judaism were actually departing from Christ, the living God. And so here in Revelation we see we're given this revelation. God gives it to Christ to give to John, to give to us, to show us. So we can now see. We, we can't say, oh, I wasn't there. John, how fortunate he was to receive this revelation from Christ. And he saw it firsthand. But, you know, we didn't see it. We saw it. We saw it because it was given to John in a visionary way so that he could give it to us. So the purpose of Revelation is so that we can see. So we've seen it. We, as we studied Revelation together, we have seen it with our own eyes. We've seen it. And so we can't say we didn't see it. So beware, brethren, lest there be in any of us an evil heart of disbelief. Where we say, you know, I, I didn't see it. Our eyes have seen it. And John bear, bear record of the word of God. And of the testimony of Christ. And of all things that he saw. So, so John's eyes become our eyes. The same way the Father saw the works of God. We've seen the works of God. Because we know the word of God is true. And, and John, John was given this word to give to us. So we could see what he saw. So we've seen and Christ himself now says he's he's Alpha and Omega and he says to John what you see John what you see write it in a book why should John write what he sees in a book 
unless there's something about what John sees which must be made permanent. And throughout time, all of the brethren need to see what John saw. So we now, the Hebrews, can say we've seen. The Father saw the works of God, we've seen as well. And so beware, lest, and, and he's descended, what he sees, he's descended to the churches. So he's to write it and send it, so that all the churches can see, and he's faithful, he faithfully, he, he says here, that he uh, is faithful of the word of God, the testament of Christ, and of all things that he saw. He bare record of this. So he wrote it in a book, and he sent it to the churches. So all of the churches through time, until Christ returns, we've seen what John has seen. So exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest again any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. And when you're up against persecution, the human brain can rationalize. And all of a sudden we begin to sort of see that, you know what, maybe... We shouldn't take such a hard line on the divinity of Christ. Maybe we should not take such a hard line on the divinity of Christ. We, we should, you know, we, Christ is a good man, and he certainly was a prophet, and I think he lived a really nice life. And you know what? We can all get along as long as we don't make a big deal of Christ. Christ is a big deal. Christ is a big deal. <laughs> Christ is a really big deal. He, he is God. And he humbled himself. And he became a man. And he did that with a purpose. He did that with a purpose. So that he could redeem Israel. And redeem mankind. And so today, let us exhort one another. And that's why we need community. That's why we shouldn't turn our back on the church. Turn our back on the brethren. And try to become this lone ranger Christian. We, we need to be exhorting one another daily. While it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So we started a little bit late, but I'll, I'll finish now, and uh, we'll continue, God willing, with Hebrews 3 next week. So this is just a wonderful, wonderful book. Great for us to pair it with the book of Revelation, so that what was given to the Hebrews in the first century, we can now apply it in the 21st century. And I'm telling you, brethren, this book is going to become more and more important and more and more central to our lives as we go into the future. The future, ultimately the future is very bright. But in the interim, wicked men will wax worse and worse. Worse and worse. And the activity of the demonic powers is going to accelerate and intensify. And this spells wonderful opportunity for the people of God, partakers of the heavenly calling, to be faithful witnesses, to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the high priest. He's the king. He is the almighty. He is, he was, and he is to come.